Arthur, a question for you. Given the plethora of exciting attacking talent that Brazil have produced over the past decades, who do you think is the nation's top scorer for their under-23s? Neymar. It's a Dalton. <laughs> no, I haven't heard of him either. He scored a measly 108 goals in over 400 games during his playing career. Uh, he played his best football during a naughty spell at Hellas Verona in the Italian second division. This is the sad reality of football. Many players peak far too soon. They show bags of potential and no shortage of quality in their youth before fading into relative obscurity. Today's eleven celebrates them, the wonder kids that produced too little wonder, the hot prospects that went cold, the football superstars that might have been. And someone to help me present the unfulfilled potential 11, someone with unfulfilled potential himself, Arthur Fane. Hello. Hello, Ben. That would be a bold shout to say that I even had any potential at a young age. <laughs> you were a marauding centre-back. I like to consider myself actually a right-back, but with really... no engine. So I would attempt to make runs up the right wing. You were a sort of then... Demel. Exactly. I wouldn't recover. So we'd be hopelessly exposed down the right flank. That sort of uh, travelled with me throughout my football career. Now to my five-a-side days. <laughs> You're very harsh on yourself. Very harsh. I'm happy to admit my own failings. Welcome to the 11, uh, a football podcast. We pick 11 players each week under a certain theme. And today it's the unfulfilled potential 11, uh, which Barclays Premier League legends or, or legends of world football uh, are going to make our side. Uh, if you've got any views on particular players that spring to mind, you can always get in touch with us at 11pod. That's the word, not the number. When we say unfulfilled potential, and obviously we're talking about those that were, were dubbed stars in their early years and, and never really reached those dizzy heights, I think there's a chance that we look at it quite negatively. But I want to put a positive spin on some of my players today. Uh, and one of those is our goalkeeper. He was an England goalkeeper. He made the Euro 2000 squad aged just 22. Any ideas? Chris Kirkland, maybe? Ooh, right sort of goalkeeper. Um, okay. Richard Wright. Oh, he was a fantastic goalkeeper. Well, he made 240 appearances for Ipswich um, in the Premier League. He made his debut aged just 17. So he really was a young prodigy, Richard Wright, when he was coming through. His career spanned Man City, Arsenal and Everton, which is an <laughs> incredibly impressive list of clubs. Uh, as I'm sure you'll agree, he was actually voted by the Anglian Times as the second best Ipswich goalkeeper of all time. And such was his success in his early 20s that he earned a £2 million move to Arsenal in 2001. He was seen as the long-term replacement for David Seaman. That was where the problem started for Richard Wright, because all of a sudden he was a second choice goalkeeper. And as you know, obviously, it's a very difficult position to um, to earn a place in the side because there is only one goalkeeper on the pitch. So he was stuck behind David Seaman, who rarely got injured uh, and was rarely out of form. 
He did get his chance, um, but unfortunately he flapped at a cross in a 4-2 defeat to Charlton and was seen as a bit of a fool guy for that particular game. He only actually managed 139 games in the 15 seasons since he left Ipswich. He eventually settled for being a second choice goalkeeper. Um, and I guess this really eclipsed at Man City. Uh, he was there for four years and he never played a single game for them, earning £350,000 per year for the privilege. Wow. It's just it's a bizarre specimen, the third choice goalkeeper, isn't it? I imagine as a goalkeeper, it's very easy to accept a colossal paycheck mm-hmm. in order to sit on the bench, not play but be at one of these incredibly prestigious clubs. And there's also the issue with fulfilling your quota of English players. And someone who's sitting on the bench as an English goalkeeper can count as a homegrown player. And I think we saw that with Rob Green at Chelsea. Mm. Uh, And I think Wright certainly fits into that category. An enormous talent as a young player. And perhaps he settled too quickly yeah, definitely, Arthur. And and I don't think we're saying with him that Richard Wright would have gone on to be the, the Ica Casillas of the Premier League. But I certainly think he could have had an extended career in English football. And instead of playing each week um, for a kind of mid-table side, his career took him in the direction of being second or third choice at the top teams. And, and I think that's a bit of a shame in a way. There was a season when Richard Wright came on loan to Southampton in the Championship. He was finally starting for a team and actually Southampton fans loved him. We had Mm. a goalkeeping crisis in terms of injuries and Richard Wright was that steady goalkeeper we needed. He was very impressive. I remember seeing a quality goalkeeper and being quite frustrated that he'd accepted that mediocrity throughout his career. Well, Richard Wright in goal for the unfulfilled potential 11. 4-4-2 today, so we've got four across the back. Left back, Arthur. I picked Royston Drenter. Oh, okay. Ex-Reading star. Of course, should I say flop? Well, exactly. He had a stint at Reading towards the end of his career, but everything was looking so good for Royston at a young age. In 2007, he won the under-21 European Championship with the Netherlands, and he won best player of the tournament. Such was his star at the time that he got his big move from Feyenoord to Real Madrid for 14 million euros um, when only 20 years old. And initially he was considered potentially Roberto Carlos's long-term successor. Things initially looked pretty good for him, but he picked up potentially a few attitude problems and also the rise of Marcelo meant that game time started to become a little bit rarer. So he went on loan to Everton, again, showed some positive signs. He scored and got some fairly important assists as well. Um, But the attitude problems returned. He said of his time at Everton after it was done, I used to confront David Moyes thinking I had the right to talk to him like that. But in hindsight, he was so right about me most times. Now I can't believe I blew it at Everton. My attitude and poor mentality are the reasons I ruined my career there. And then Mm. that stint at Reading. Ben, did you have any particular memories of his time there? Of course I do, yeah. It's weird for me because I actually saw him play um, in a pre-season tournament in Rotterdam when he was at Feyenoord. Wow. And he lit up the park. I think he was playing in a slightly more advanced role um, on the left wing at that point. Can I ask what made you end up in Rotterdam at a pre-season tournament? Uh, scouting for the podcast, Arthur. Oh, very good. Yeah, I had a great time. 
chilling out with Sebastian Leto at Liverpool. Um, no, he was fantastic. He lit up the park, skillful. He had flair. I think by the time he'd arrived at Reading, he probably knew himself that his football career wasn't going to glisten in quite the same way that people expected. He had a lot of problems off the field. Um, he was caught drink driving. Um, easy to get caught drink driving when you actually film yourself drink driving. Um, he was starring in rap videos. He had issues to iron out off the pitch, but you could still see that he had the quality um, of someone who was hugely talented. He just lacked the work rate. He lacked that attitude that you need to be a top class footballer. So it's a shame. And I think he's a player that excites fans and therefore should be heralded for that. But certainly one that has not quite fulfilled the potential he had. He only got one cap for the national side mm-hmm. and he is still playing actually. Uh, interestingly, he now plays for Racing Mercia in the Spanish fourth division. Uh, he had stints in Turkey, the UAE and Dutch amateur football. A great pick, Arthur. I love it. Um, and alongside him, I think I want quite an athletic centre-back. I think that would complement his style because with Drenta going forward, I think we need our centre-back to cover. Um, so I've gone for Michael Mancien. He was, so- a, he was a Chelsea prospect. He was a Chelsea prospect. You're absolutely right, Arthur. He was one of many, actually, that have gone through that graveyard of young talent at Chelsea, um, to name a few. Lucas Piazon, Matt Miazga, arguably, Michael Hector, Guile Kakuta. It's become a bit of a sad state of affairs, really, the youth system at Chelsea. I know they have some that go through, like Mason Mount and Tammy Abraham, but there are others that that really struggle and just go out on a succession of loans. And, and Michael Mancien was one of them. I like the video game FIFA. And whilst you have to take some of it with a pinch of salt, I think it is actually quite a good measure of potential. Because in the game's career mode, you probably know, a lot of the young players have the potential to grow and there's a rating attributed to that growth. Um, Michael Mancien on FIFA 09 has the potential of 83 as a rating out of 100. So to give people an idea, if you don't play FIFA, that was the same rating at the time as Ashley Cole, uh, Rafael Marquez, who was playing for Barcelona, and Gianluca Zambrotta, who was part of the, the Italian World Cup winning side. Now, on FIFA 21, his rating is just 67, and he peaked at 74. So that gives you an idea of the fact that Michael Mancien never really lived up to the hype um, that surrounded him. But I don't think it was entirely his fault. Um, He was a highly technical centre-back when he was growing up. Um, He was able to step into midfield effectively, and he'd represented England at under-16, under-17, under-18, under-19, and under-21 level. In fact, he was the fifth highest ever when it comes to caps for the under-21 side. But he was hugely frustrated by a lack of game time at Chelsea. And in fact, during his spell there, he only managed to play four times for the senior team. He had reasonably successful loans, um, QPR and Wolves, um, but eventually he had to leave England altogether to get the game time he craved. uh, And that was with Hamburg in Germany. I thought this quote was interesting from him and perhaps says a lot about the English youth system. He said, the big thing I noticed in Germany is that teams would rather push through a youngster than make a signing. That is why their national team does so well and maybe why England doesn't. 
I don't think there's one player from our academy in or around my age group that's still there. Ryan Bertrand, Jack Cork and Sam Hutchinson have all left. Liam Bridcutt is now with me at Forest. I was in the comfort zone at Chelsea. It's easy for players to rot away in that environment. When you're at a big club, you can easily get caught in a bubble because everything is done for you. When you go out on loan, you're really thrown into real life. That is statistically backed up what Mancian says. And I guess it begs the question, Arthur, as a young prospect, are you actually better off at the big clubs? You've seen a lot of situations recently with with Sancho, uh, a couple of the Arsenal youngsters making the most of these moves to Germany where the chances are just given to them. Smaller clubs in the Premier League and, and the Championship can perhaps afford to play these youngsters. But when you have the likes of Man City who are competing for silverware every year, it's quite difficult to give opportunities to these younger players. And Mancien actually, I mean, perhaps you could say his career proved that perhaps his star wasn't as bright as we thought it was because when he had his chances in Germany, I don't think he really took that. He came back to England and I think he went to, did he go to Nottingham Forest? He did, yeah. He played in the championship with with Notts Forest for a while. By that stage, he was in his late 20s, really. So I think the chances of, of playing for England were gone. But when you have a, a war chest of the likes of Man City and Liverpool, it's so easy to sign a player for 30, 40 million at centre-back and solve your problem rather than playing a player who might struggle on that bigger stage. So who's going to be partnering Michael in the centre of the defence, Arthur? I've gone for Philippe Christanval. <laughs> that is niche, Arthur. It is a little bit niche. Premier League fans saw him when his career had hit a bit of a downward trajectory. Uh, yes. Signed for Fulham later in his career. But in 2001, everything was going so well. He'd just signed for Barcelona for 17 million euros, having just been Monaco's player of the year, and his team had won the Liga title. Prior to the 2002 World Cup, BBC Sport did a feature on him describing him as follows. Chris Dunval has been a towering presence since making his debut for French side Monaco in 97. And such was his impact that AC Milan, Inter and Barcelona were all lining up for his signature. The 23-year-old has since lived up to the interest with a series of mature displays for both Barca and France. The French boss has already signalled him out as the future of France's central defence and the World Cup could provide the perfect springboard. Oh man, we didn't see that at Fulham, did we? We didn't. Certainly the the World Cup did not provide that springboard. He didn't make it off the bench. And actually that initial promise that he showed at Barcelona dried up. He didn't play certainly to his full potential. He started picking up a few niggly injuries, not getting as much game time as he had hoped. And then he moved on back to France, to Marseille. He had 13 appearances in two years at Marseille. When I first looked into this, I thought this could be injury related, but he actually expressly denied that it had anything to do with injuries, um, saying he was simply out of favour. And upon signing for Fulham, Chris Coleman said he could be captain for the next five years. They thought they were signing very much a player who had still had that enormous potential, just simply hadn't realised it. And he showed glimpses at Fulham, but actually at Fulham, the injuries really did catch up with him. As soon as he got into his stride, he picked up another injury. And it was a tale of frustration because I think Fulham fans see him as this player who 
had this boundless potential and if they could have harnessed it and simply kept him injury free he could have been that captain that Coleman talked about but ultimately he was released at Fulham at 29 and just couldn't find another club so he initially became a jeweler and then an estate agent working on luxury homes in the Côte d'Azur. Oh man I do remember Philippe Christian Val in his initial career being labelled as the next big thing um, and that doesn't happen without talent. So Ben, a right back to complete our defence. Yes. And for this, we draw upon uh, Justin Hoyt. <laughs> oh, Justin. He made his debut age just 19 in a 6-1 drubbing of your side, Southampton, Arthur. Sad times. He actually had a very good game. He seemed to have everything as a wing back. Um, pace, power. Uh, he was decent going forward fearless in the tackle but I guess Justin Hoyt's main problem was that he was behind in the pecking order a very experienced right back at Arsenal at the time which was Laurent um, and he simply couldn't break into the team Laurent's form was exceptional during those um, very successful years under our Arsene Wenger uh, and Hoyt simply couldn't find his place that being said Wenger saw his potential Um, And as a result, he refused to let Hoyt go out on loan, um, insisting that Arsenal needed that class backup. Eventually, uh, he did let him leave. um, But by the time he'd moved on to Borough, um, he was actually 25 years old. So I guess a number of those developing years had already passed. He did okay at Borough um, after his £3 million move um, until he was eventually ousted from the side by Frazier Richardson, which... (laughs) which isn't great is it Fraser Richardson had his moments he was an assist machine for Southampton uh, at one point well I I guess Southampton and Fraser's game was unfortunately (laughs) Justin's loss and sadly he incurred injury troubles um, in the latter half of his career he had difficult spells at Millwall and Dagenham and then he spent a period of time without a club and again, a bit like Philippe Christian Val, he was desperately looking for a club. He ended up nearly going on trial at Cray Wanderers out in Ireland uh, and ended up in Cincinnati, uh, where he currently still plays, age 36. And so he's having a, an interesting twilight to his career, Justin Hoyt. But certainly when we saw that player break out at 19, there was talk that Justin Hoyt could become the England right back in the future. And that sadly never happened. I think the particularly interesting thing about this story is that his brother, Gavin Hoyt, who is six years younger than him, was also at Arsenal as a youngster, only made one appearance and now plays for Maidstone United. So two right backs in the same family that both failed to break into that Arsenal starting lineup on a regular basis and perhaps didn't fulfil their potential as a result. I quite enjoy the fact that they both played for Trinidad and Tobago after being in the It's really random, isn't it? (laughs) So random. So that's the defence. Do get in touch at 11 pods. Let us know who you think we've missed out. It's with Everton. Rodwell. Drenta. Oh, what a goal! What a brilliant goal! Royston Drenthe after two minutes and 18 seconds. So it's entertainment time. Ben, have you got something organised for us? Well, Arthur, it'd be pretty pants if I didn't. But thankfully I do. I thought we, Arthur, could together discuss and evaluate the Premier League sides 
of the past sort of 20 years that haven't lived up to their expectations uh, and, and temporarily crown the team that we feel flattered to deceive the most. Uh, so I've got three here for us to discuss. The first one was the Manchester United side of 2013-14, which was the first season under David Moyes. So to set the scene, Fergie's dominance was well documented. But sadly, after winning the title the year before, they finished seventh. Um, And I just remember how disappointed all the United fans were at the time. It was a difficult job that David Moyes stepped into in succeeding a legend like Sir Alex Ferguson. He stepped into an ageing squad. Mm, That is a good point. I think a lot of the players were past peak by the time he inherited them. It wasn't an easy job that he had. And I don't think when we we talk about flattering to deceive, I can't really remember where the expectations even that high. See, that's controversial, Arthur. I disagree wholeheartedly with that. I think if you're inheriting a, a side like Manchester United, the expectation is always that you will win the Premier League. And for them to fall from first to seventh, even with as big a budget as they had, to bring in players the likes of Marouane Fellaini um, that, that came in for big money. That's a massive flop. That lies on David Moyes' shoulders and the recruitment team at United. I mean, I've, I've noted down the starting lineup from one of their games. Um, this was from the 1-0 home defeat to Moyes' old side, Everton. And they lined up like this. De Gea, Evra, Vidic, Smalling, Raphael, Valencia, Fellaini, Kagawa, Giggs, Rooney, Welbeck. Now, it's not the epic Manchester United side at peak Fergie, but you would expect that side to be higher than seventh, wouldn't you? I think seventh undoubtedly was disappointing, but I think expectations on them to win the title yet again, I think were were relatively unreasonable. I struggle to see who could have been bought in as Ferguson's replacement and be an enormous success. A lot of those players were Fergie's players. And you Mm. see... With Brian Clough at Leeds United, when when he came in, obviously famously documented in the Damned United, a lot of those players were Don Revy's players and didn't really have that affinity with the manager. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure it's the poison chalice that you're making out, to be honest, Arthur. I still think that side really did underachieve that season. And, and part of it's down to the players rather than, than the manager, David Moyes. But Let's see. Let's move on to the second team and see what you think of that. This is the Newcastle United side of 2008-2009. They had lots of managers this season, um, which included the likes of Alan Shearer and Joe Kinnear. Um, They finished 18th after a previous 12th place finish. So it was the first time they'd been relegated from the Premier League. The side that I've picked out is from the 1-1 draw with Hull, uh, which was a particularly exciting game. Um, Playing for them that day, Steve Harper, Stephen Taylor, Fabrizio Colaccini, Sebastian Bassong, Jose Enrique, Alan Smith, Nicky Butt, Jeremy, Jonas Gutierrez, Michael Owen and Oberfemi Martins. How has that side gone down? That is an unbelievable underachievement. I think they had a squad that contained the likes of Mark Fajuka and obviously Sholaran Miobi, uh, a firm favourite of the pod, and Andy Carroll. A lot of injury problems in that squad. And Michael Owen obviously returning to the Premier League. 
with Newcastle, he was a bit of a sick note that season, I remember. He was. And certainly, yeah, that's the point. A lot of those names were a bit past their best in 2008, 2009. But that's just a list of internationals. Fabrizio Colaccini was the centre-back for Argentina. Um, I mean, Oberfemi Martins was coveted by most of Serie A and world football, and they've gone down. I completely agree with you on this one, Ben. I don't think there's any controversy there. They have their issues off the pitch as well under Mike Ashley. It's potentially been seen as a poison chalice as well. Anyone who manages that club, they struggle given the off-field goings-on at the club. I think even this season, Steve Bruce's squad isn't actually that bad on paper, but they struggle because of what goes on behind the scenes potentially. So we think Newcastle may be greater underachievers than the United side under Moyes. Um, But here's one more to potentially throw into the mix, Arthur. Uh, What about the Tottenham side of 2003-2004? This one was managed by Glenn Hoddle, so a decent calibre of manager. Um, They finished 14th, which was their lowest finish since 1998. And wait for this side. This is from the 2-1 defeat to Fulham. Casey Keller, Stephen Carr, Anthony Gardner, Gary Doherty, Ledley King, Christian Zieger, Simon Davis, Michael Brown, Stefan Dalmat, Robbie Keane, Helder Postiga. Now, I know that some of those names aren't quite the likes of Harry Kane and Son Hyun Min that you might get in a Tottenham side these days, but there's a lot of flops in there. So Helder Postiga, for instance, bought with big potential, didn't quite live up to that potential. Stefan Dalmat didn't live up to his potential at Tottenham. You could say the same potentially about Christian Zieger. (sighs) Surely that's an underachievement. That's a squad that has incredibly impressive individuals. In terms of that starting lineup, it doesn't jump off the paper for me. In the 2002-03 season, though, they finished 10th. So frankly, this isn't the fall off the cliff that the stat that you presented the lowest since 1998 would suggest. No, I, I, I'm not hundred percent sure I agree because if you're a Tottenham fan, a fan of a major London club, you would expect your, your side to finish higher than 14th. And I know that side doesn't jump off the paper as being world-class, but as an overall achievement for the club, surely that's way below Tottenham's expectations and that's why Glenn Hoddle didn't last in the end at Tottenham. Yeah, and I think when you're when you're spending 6.5 mil on someone like Helder Postiga and then he's just not performing for the club, I think that's a difficult situation you're putting yourself in when you're signing a marquee player like that. That is true. So I guess what we're concluding, Arthur, is that, that out of those three, Newcastle United 2008-09 is probably the side that didn't live up to expectations to the greatest extent. Let us know if you can think of a side in Premier League history that has let down the fans more than that Newcastle United side under Shearer and Kinnear. We move on to the midfield. From Newcastle recently, Martins! That is fantastic. Left midfield, Ben, over to you. Yes, a Mexican. Giovanni dos Santos. Oh, he was he was one of those players whose potential on these football games was unlimited. Yeah, uh, I mean, super silky. 
uh, so quick as well, Giovanni Dos Santos. His success started at a really young age, um, as is common for most of these players in the, the unfulfilled potential 11. He was just 12 when he was participating in the Danon Nations Cup. Uh, I love a football tournament sponsored by a yogurt. I don't know about you. There was always the milk cup as yeah. well. <laughs> it's great, some of these trophies. But yeah, he was he was 12 and he won the golden boot for being the top scorer in that competition. So eyes were on him. He was at La Masia, which is Barcelona's youth academy, uh, showing real promise um, to the extent that he was actually named in World Soccer magazine as one of the top 50 most exciting team footballers. His time wow. at Barcelona was was not entirely successful in that he had a year where, sure, there were signs that, that he was going to be one of the best um, of his generation. Um, but he only actually lasted a year before it was felt by the Barcelona officials that, that perhaps he was too much of a risk to have on their books and that they could cash in. So that was the point where we got to see him. He went to Spurs for six million euros which doesn't seem like a lot of money for a player that was already being touted as potentially one of the world's greatest. Sadly, as we know, all of that potential didn't really amount to too much on the pitch. And uh, I've got a friend of the show, Joe Alexander, to give his opinion on Giovanni Dos Santos in a Tottenham shirt. There's a saying, if something seems too good to be true, it probably is. And that essentially sums up Giovanni Dos Santos at Spurs. When we signed him from Barcelona, a player who'd scored a hat-trick at the new Camp on his last game for the club, I was incredibly excited. But he looks lightweight, he doesn't do much, and he ends up on loan at Ipswich Town about six months later. However, he did score once against Shamrock Rovers, so maybe he had a bit more luck than I realised. But no, what a shame. Could have been so much different, but sounds like he enjoyed the nightclubs more than White Hart Lane. Thank you for recording that from your understairs covers. Um, <laughs> greatly appreciated. But I guess what it sums up is is Giovanni's... <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was something. Um, but I guess it does sum up his unfulfilled potential in a very sort of sensual way. Um, in the latter half of his career, uh, Giovanni Dos Santos uh, carved out quite a decent spell in the MLS at LA Galaxy. And he was actually the cover star for FIFA out in America um, for two of those years. I guess what we would say, though, is surely that wasn't his ceiling. Surely he wasn't born to be a cracking MLS player. It felt like he was much more than that. It just never happened for him. Absolutely. There's a few of these Barcelona youngsters. I think Bojan mm. fits into that uh, yeah. fits into that bracket. The unfulfilled Barca youngsters who come and try and ply their trade in the Premier League. I think Bojan was more successful than Giovanni. But, you know, these youngsters who go to America and actually find their level, you know, Bradley Wright Phillips as well. But <laughs> should do I, it in I mean, America. G- comparing Giovanni Dos Santos to Bradley Wright Phillips shows you just how far his, <laughs> his, his star has fallen. <laughs> Arthur, we need two centre midfielders to make this side worth a watch. We do. And first up, I've chosen Ravel Morrison. Oh, of course you have. One of the biggest talents ever to come through Manchester United's academy. He was an integral part of their 2011 FA Youth Cup triumph in a team containing Sam Johnston, who's recently been called up for England, 
Michael Keane, Paul Pogba, Jesse Lingard. Mm. But he was very much the best of that generation. Wayne Rooney wrote about him. I remember watching Ravel Morrison thinking he had everything required for a player in his position. He was brilliant. He was confident. He nutmegged Nemanja Vidic three times in the oh, state minute. You don't that do is, that easily, do you? Nobody does that. One of the all-time great centre-backs in the Premier League. Ferguson and used the, to rave about Morrison as well. He really did. And he was very much that quality young player that nobody could get that spark out of. He only ever made three appearances for his boyhood club. He had spells at QPR, West Ham, Atlas in Mexico, Ostersund in Sweden before returning to these shores with Sheffield United. He he had a few very brief moments of brilliance. I remember at West Ham, his goal in their 3-0 win against Spurs. There was a moment as well in England under-21 training that went viral on YouTube of him scoring this incredible backheel volley from a training corner. It's just that frustrating talent that just couldn't be realised. That's what it is. It's frustrating. And, and and there were so many clubs that were willing to give Ravel a go. I know he played for Lazio for a while as well. We genuinely thought we had the talent on our hands of the 21st century. And unfortunately, it just didn't work out for him. I know there were off-the-field problems I think I think he stole a pair of Rio Ferdinand's boots, but certainly Ravel Morrison deserves his place in the unfulfilled potential eleven. Alongside him in the centre of the park, mm. I have chosen a Man City player in Stephen Ireland. Oh, Stephen Ireland, man, that that is a blast from the past. Stephen Ireland. He had that one season in the Premier League where everything went right. He was aged just twenty-two. And he got nine goals and nine assists in the 2008-9 Premier League season. Was named City's player of the season. This was very early days in the new ownership where the, the billionaires came in. Mm. And the expectations weren't hugely high. They made some encouraging signings. He played alongside Elano in the centre of the park. <laughs> there were um, some great players playing for City in those days. I just remember because Michael Johnson was coming through at the time as well. And it was this weird situation where they had the big money being spent on players like Bernardo Caradi uh, and, and obviously Rubinho on his way. And then you had Michael Johnson and Stephen Ireland in the midfield. It, it felt very unusual. Exactly. Michael Johnson, obviously another disappointing one but poor guy just was blighted by injuries throughout his career Ireland was I mean he was doing it all he, on an international level he had four goals in just six games for Ireland until he had an exile from international duty he had a bit of a misunderstanding regarding a personal issue of his then on a club level it all went wrong Roberto Mancini replaced Mark Hughes and Ireland said my face just didn't seem to fit anymore he started playing a lot less regularly and was eventually sent to train with the youth team. When he left for Villa for £8 million in part exchange for James Milner, in what must be one of the worst predictions ever, he said, I guess James Milner must think the grass is greener on the other side. He's going to get a shock soon because it's definitely not that way. <laughs> James <laughs> Milner, of course, went on to win two Premier League titles, an FA Cup and a League Cup at Man City. That is really strange. It makes me laugh a little bit more than it should that Stephen Ireland actually played for Ireland. I know, you know, not like Alan Brazil playing for Scotland. <laughs> no, exactly. 
It's a shame it, more players don't have that. I think there is actually uh, an England women's player called England. Um, oh, is there? Mm, I believe so. And Jason um, Scotland playing for Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> he had stints, obviously, at Villa and Stoke. Gerard Houllier publicly said that he needed to work on his on his work rate and attitude issues. He did have moments of brilliance, albeit very briefly. And then that final roll of the dice was at Bolton, where he didn't play a single game. Something he said was down to the Trotters' financial troubles and he had a bonus structure that, that limited his playing time. And then he retired at age 31. It's frustrating because after that brilliant season at such a young age, he was very much a firm fixture in my fantasy football team. And I thought this guy is going to be great. He was young. He was talented. He was banging them in and creating lots of goals. Welcome to the unfulfilled potential 11. Uh, We need a right midfielder who can cross the ball into our strike force, Arthur. This one's a bit more obscure. He was Dutch. He played for Wigan and Birmingham. Brief spells in the Premier League. Daniel Derrida. This was a winger with skill and flair, Daniel Derrida. And I remember actually first seeing him playing for the Dutch under-21s. He had a hugely promising start to his career. At Ajax, he was coming through their successful academy. He actually made his UEFA Champions League debut in 2004, um, coming off the bench as a substitute in a a match against Bayern Munich. Such was his potential. He was aged just 20. um, And this warranted an improved deal at Ajax until June 2007. He was playing for the Dutch national side, their under-21 side, in the 2006 and 2007 European Championships. So he would have played with Royston Drenthe, actually. And they won both of those championships, the Netherlands, before he moved to Birmingham City on a free transfer ahead of their Premier League campaign. Though he showed flashes of brilliance, a winger with with an incredible amount of ingenuity and creativity, unfortunately, he just couldn't do it consistently and he was in and out the side. His brilliance shone uh, in a game against Wigan, uh, a side that he'd later play for where he was named Man of the Match. But in the end, under Alex McLeish, Birmingham decided to go for a far more compact, uh, physical-looking formation to try and and stay in the top flight of English football. And Derrida just didn't fit. So it was deemed that he had to move on. What I found particularly interesting about the story of Daniel Derrida is he's pretty obscure. I mean, people don't really know about him. But actually, despite being released by Birmingham City, um, at one point, Arsenal apparently were looking to come in for him for three million. Um, and this was while he was at Birmingham. So obviously Arsene Wenger saw something in Derrida that the rest of the world didn't. Potentially considering the inclusion in this 11 of Richard Wright and Justin Hoyt, Arsenal were just after another dose of unfulfilled potential. But perhaps that's true with Daniel. Unfortunately, he never really got a consistent run in any side that he played for. Uh, in fact, He never actually played 30 games for any of the clubs that he played for. Um, He made pretty much the same amount of uh, appearances for the under-21 side than he did for any of his club sides throughout his career. And he retired fairly young. So certainly someone who was blossoming in his youth, um, but never really went on to do anything despite opportunities in the Premier League. Interesting shout, Ben. 
was unbelievable. The strike force in the unfulfilled potential 11, one of which is up for grabs. So Arthur will bo- and I will both be nominating a player from football years gone by. And you can vote on Twitter at 11pod for who you want to make the unfulfilled potential 11. The other striker, though, that's up to you, Arthur. It is indeed. And it's another Arsenal legend. <laughs> they get through these flops, don't they? They really do. It's someone who could have become a legend, but certainly didn't. It's Francis Jeffers. Right. Yes. Classic. I actually he, thought he was hugely talented, Francis Jeffers. Well, I think most of the world did when he made his Everton debut at just 16 years old, scored 13 goals in 16 England under 21 games, a joint record broken only last year by Eddie and Ketia. Mm. And 18 goals in 49 for Everton at such a tender age before he started to agitate for a move. And when he finally handed in his transfer request, manager Walter Smith told him, get out of my office before I kill you. Oh, Walter. A little, little bit harsh. A little bit harsh on a player who simply wanted to take his career to the next level. But injuries hampered his last season at Everton, um, potentially foreshadowing what was to come. He played only 12 games, but did score six goals. And Arsenal then signed him for £8 million pounds which I think when you weigh it up against the 11 million they spent on Thierry Henry just two years earlier says all you need to know about how Mm. much they rated him and actually Henry himself said in 2001 we need a player who will be a fox in the box and on the pitch we need a player like Owen is for Liverpool (laughs) hang on a minute you say a fox in the box and on the pitch that's, where, that's the direct quote. <laughs> where is this box then? He, need, I, he needs him to be a fox all over the pitch. <laughs> when Arsenal signed Francis Jeffers, Wenger in the unveiling did describe him as a fox in the box. So essentially it's his delivery upon Thierry Henry's request. But he only played 22 league games for Arsenal. He scored four goals. He did get called up to England under Sven, who seemed to be handing... England caps to pretty much anyone who had English nationality. Mm. He scored one goal in his one cap and it was against Australia, uh, which is a, a nice little pub quiz bit of knowledge. And actually, I think a bit of a kick in the teeth was the fact that he was struggling for game time at Arsenal. So he actually went back on loan to Everton during the season that Arsenal had their invincible season and his time at Everton was marred by 18 Premier League games and zero goals. So really a sign of how far he'd fallen. He had his injury problems, but for me, this one more seems like just a complete evaporation of the talent that he's shown at a young age. He had chances again in the Premier League with Charlton and Blackburn, um, which he didn't take. At the former, he was sent to, on loan to Rangers, but he couldn't even score a goal in the SPL. And perhaps the championship was his level. Sheffield Wednesday gave him that chance. He scored five goals in 60 games and was mm. then released. He had a further unproductive stint in Australia. And then he found himself in Malta, where wow. he played just two games. He did score, in fairness, but then he was involved in a minor media storm when a fake account tweeted maybe I should have accepted that place in I'm a celebrity that was the worst league or club I've ever been involved with and actually that appeared in the Maltese times they were a bit outraged at this but then obviously it turned out that it was a fake account and actually if, if we're ever doubting that Francis Jeffers was an unfulfilled 
potential. I've got this direct quote from him. I did not fulfill my potential. That is a fact. <laughs> well, that's that then. I don't really think there's much more to say. Thanks, Francis. Right, up for grabs, the second striker position. I think you should kick us off as I've just delivered us Francis Jeffers. I'm going for another England striker. He made his debut for his country in 2002 with an overhead kick and man of the match performance against Holland. It's Darius Vassell. Oh, Darius. What a player. Oh, Darius Vassell. He made, as I said, his debut in 2002. He actually made his final England appearance just two years later, um, missing a spot kick in Euro 2004 uh, in our defeat to Portugal. And then he was never seen in the uh, in the team again. So that was his last appearance for England at the age of just 24. I feel sorry for Darius Vassell because he did have everything. He had pace. He had a low centre of gravity. He could finish. Um, but he became a bit of a pantomime villain for many fans. Uh, and I think this was our fault and the media's fault, really, for hyping him up too much and expecting too much of what was really just a, a decent Premier League player. And, and what's wrong with that? He never really delivered on his true potential when he was starting. And uh, towards the end of his career, he became known as being more of a super sub, really. Uh, yeah, it's junior team Romulus in, in Birmingham. He scored a record of 46 in a season, including six in one match. He was a Villa fan. So naturally, he joined their school of excellence when he was the ripe age. And while playing for the club's youth setup, he set a record um, at the club, scoring 39 goals in a season. He actually went on to play for Manchester City as well, um, probably around the similar time that Stephen Ireland was playing for them, to be honest. He was played out wide more uh, to accommodate uh, quite a quality strike force, really, including Emil and Penza. So you can completely understand that decision, can't you? And really his his football career, his time in the Premier League, I wouldn't say petered out, but never really reached the dizzy heights that it was meant to reach. Uh, one story I'd like to tell, during the twilight of his career, he went to Ankaraguchu. He, he tells this story in his autobiography. He said, there were thousands of supporters there to greet me when I turned up at the airport. I was totally taken aback. I'd never experienced anything like this before. People holding up banners, flares, uh, and every television camera available seemed to be pointing at me. You wouldn't necessarily expect this for the arrival of Darius Vassell, would you, Arthur? <laughs> he then discusses that before a home game, we travelled to the ground on the team coach and stopped outside our stadium for a goat to be sacrificed before the game. It was just the staff and players around. I felt like the goat looked at me just before. <laughs> and as I said at the time via my blog, it was that point in time when I realised I was definitely an animal lover. Some players smeared the blood on their boots and head for good luck. I didn't want to disrespect them at all. It was part of their culture. I wasn't asked to join in, but the players made sure I was okay after, which was very respectful and not needed. They had no idea my family back home in Jamaica would find this quite normal too. I changed my iPod album from Tupac to Bob Marley and got myself ready. I mean, if that doesn't sell the autobiography, I don't know what will. I would say, though, he didn't score many goals as a striker slash wide midfielder in his career. But, I mean, to say that he's an unfulfilled potential when he's got 22 England caps under his belt. I think his ceiling as a, as a youngster must have been incredibly high. And I'm not sure it was quite that high, was it? 
I would disagree because you've got to remember that those 22 England caps came between the ages of 22 and 24. I think if you've got a player that is scoring goals at Premier League level in his early 20s, at a time when England weren't especially amazing, you would expect him to go on and and produce the goods in his later 20s. I think I'd give the example of Jermaine Defoe, a player that was arguably similar to Darius Vassell, um, who was still prolific in his late 20s and early 30s and, and still being courted by Premier League clubs. Darius's career didn't go that way. Um, he had everything at a young age. You know, you don't score an overhead kick against the Netherlands on your home debut without talent. But sadly, it petered out and ended up in Turkey with Ankara Gucci. So who's he up against, Arthur, for our 11? He's up against someone who, for me, was a generational talent. Okay. Adriano. Adriano! Wow, I wouldn't have necessarily put him in the unfulfilled potential 11. Adriano, when he was coming through... He he was an unbelievable talent, potentially seen as Ronaldo's successor as one of the great Brazilian strikers. And actually, it's a sad story because I think that the cliff in his career came with the death of his father. Ah. Um, and this was perhaps a, a catalyst for his decline. Um, he's remembered now mainly for another football game, Pro Evo Soccer. Yeah, having- shot power. Shot power 99. (laughs) Amazing. So in 2004-05, we got a glimpse of what he could become. Aged just 22, he plundered 28 goals in all competitions. But that was the year that he also lost his father, who was very much a guiding influence on his life. And sadly, he turned to drink and, and a bit of a party lifestyle. He had the skill and the physical stature, certainly to become Ronaldo's heir. And a brilliant finishing ability. He went on loan to Parma in 2002-03, where he formed one of the great what-if striking partnerships with Adrian Mutu. Wow. It was also very much an unfulfilled potential, that due to his off-pitch misdemeanours. Absolutely. They scored 33 goals between them, and Adriano himself was later described by coach Cesare Prandelli as the best player I've ever coached with, quote, stratospheric potential. And even Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who, well, I mean, rates himself as the greatest player of all time. <laughs> sure, yeah. Zlatan said, I played with great champions. I played with players that were already wow. I played with players that I saw were a talent and became wow. But the one I felt could do it longer and didn't do it was Adriano when I was at Inter. He could shoot from every angle. Nobody could tackle him. Nobody could take the ball. He was a pure animal. It's such a frustrating story because he did have that talent. And internationally, he did produce the goods. He scored 27 goals in 48 games. But ultimately, it boils down to the fact that he's a record three-time winner of the Bidone d'Oro, which is the trophy given to the worst player in Syria. He got that in 2006, 7 and 2010. Really? Yeah. So he's a striker who promised so much but rarely produced the goods. Certainly in the latter half of his career, he just didn't really score many goals. He looked quite lazy. He sadly looked a little bit overweight on the pitch as well. Mm. And because he was such an unbelievable talent, dare I say even greater talent at a young age than Darius Vassell, I just think he's a great shout for the up-for-grab striker spot. 
I think you've convinced me that Adriano is a good shout. Not the most Brazilian, Brazilian forward um, that's ever played the game, but but certainly on a par with a Dalton, do you think, from the beginning of this episode as an unfulfilled potential striker? That's an incredibly bold claim there, Ben. <laughs> I'm not quite sure he could compete with that. Adriano, it's there. Breakthrough for Brazil. So onto the bench, players that didn't quite make the cut today, but we want to mention nonetheless. Lots of options for this. Mubalelu Mabizela was one that I considered for a while. Um, a fantastic name. South African centre-half for Tottenham, who again had off-the-field problems and, and, and was once described as the best talent ever to come out of South Africa, but failed to make his mark in the Premier League. A few others, Emiliano Insua. He was a left-back, believed to be really the successor of John Arnaresa at Liverpool, but that never happened. And another player that was back from Chelsea days when they were just starting to get get the money in from Robin Abramovich. They signed Asia Del Horno for eight million, went on to barely play for the side. I think there are a few Premier League icons who could have been so good, especially for England, but didn't quite live up to that potential. And they were, in my opinion, David Bentley was yeah, certainly one of those. Yeah. Uh, Jermaine Pennant, I don't think, mm, fulfilled his mm, enormous potential. Mm, mm-hmm. John Bostock. Yeah, was a yeah. Very, very talented teenager at Crystal Palace. Got his big move to Spurs and, and couldn't fulfill that potential. Cherno Samba. Who, oh, football manager <laughs> legend. Of course, at 13, he scored 132 goals in 32 games. He was I've one of those stories, and I just was, don't believe it. He was one of those classic players who was tipped to lead the line at the 2006 World Cup. <laughs> 100%. But I'm pretty happy with our 11, Arthur. Do you want to run us through? I will. In goal, we have Richard Wright. At left-back, Royston Drenter. A centre-back partnership of Philippe Christanval and Michael Mancien. At right-back, Justin Hoyt. In the centre of the park, Stephen Island and Ravel Morrison. On the left, Giovanni Dos Santos. And on the right, Daniel de Ridder. And then up front, Francis Jeffers leading the line alongside... Either Adriano or Darius Vassell. That's up to you. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. So we've recorded a few of these episodes of the 11 in particular flurries. And of course, people have been getting in touch to let us know what they think. Potentially for the wet and windy 11, my friend Mike suggested Deli Adabola. Crazy. Uh, he's, he's an exceptional target man for that team. And another Tommy has got in touch saying that for the unfulfilled potential 11, he would very much refute a potential decision of mine to include Freddie Adu. Oh, man. Well, thank, who, thank goodness he didn't. I did consider him. However, we both actually, after some discussion, felt that he never actually had that higher potential. It's just simply because he played at 14 in the MLS that everyone thought he yeah. was going to be a big deal. And he wasn't really. So big hype. Go. Well, thank you, Mike and Tommy. We've had a lot of people on Twitter as well. Um, Simon really enjoyed the first episode. We had some great interaction with the West Brom fans, didn't we, Arthur, around Jason Kumas. One of my favourite comments was from Ned and Raquel Rogers. who said... Everyone who saw that performance against Forest away could claim he was better than prime Pele that day. 
So I think the Jason Kumas swell of support surprised us greatly. I didn't realize yeah. he had quite such a cult following. Of course, a brilliant player, but didn't really see him in the same context as Pele. But then again, I wasn't there on that, that Nottingham Forest day. Yeah, he clearly had to be there for that one. We had interaction from the United Mates football podcast. They've been supporting us along the way. Great podcast. Do check them out. They suggested Maynor Figueroa, Matty Taylor and Eric Edman uh, for the Worldies 11. Rave reviews for your shout as well of Yuri Jorkayev from some <laughs> Bolton fans, Arthur. Um, an outstanding talent, brilliant on the ball and a cracking finisher. That was from Kieran. I felt perhaps it was a bit of a disservice to put him in the wet and windy 11, but we had to get him in somehow. Well, Gary Jackson said he was a genius and an honour to see him play. So I guess that backs up the fact that his brilliance went beyond wet and windy. And also for the bargain 11, uh, Seamus Coleman, Eric Cantona, Nicholas Anelka, they were some names from Sam Barry. Thanks, Sam, for getting in touch. 